We have a guest speaker with us this morning. And uh, if you haven't noticed, both of our pastors are through the coop. And, uh, you know, he's not a stranger to all of us. He might be to some of you. I had Kay, I don't think so. his mother-in-law, write down his name so I could at least have a chance. <laughs> Marcus Berrios. Is that close? Close. Close enough. Okay. <laughs> this is Marcus, and we welcome him to our pulpit this morning, and thank you for coming and being here. Thank you. You bet. Let me clear my stuff out of here. Sure. I'll let you clean up. Thank you very much. Yep. Whoops. Yes, my name is, am I on? Am I good? All right. My name's Marcus. Um, I've preached here before uh, about a year and a half ago on Colossians. I'm not preaching out of Colossians today. It's okay. Um, I love this pulpit. I said it last time. There's a cup holder. I think that's cool. It's just really cool. Um, yeah, my mother-in-law is Kay. Um, I'm married to her daughter, Libby. Um, I was supposed to share about me, but... There's not much to say. Um, forgive me for, uh, you know, being a little slow this morning. I slept in my father-in-law's house last night and woke up with frostbite on my face because he insists on having the house at 58 degrees. So feel free to get after him later. Um, the text for today is Hebrews 3, um, 1 through 6. So if you have a Bible... Um, Please turn there. Um, Hebrews chapter 3. And if you would, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, and if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day um, that we could come and gather here and give um, pastors um, a break um, to be with their families. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and be with these people this morning. I pray that um, we would be attentive to your word, we would be attentive to your spirit. I ask that uh, we would leave here um, people who are willing to go forth with the gospel um, for your name. We just ask this in Jesus' name, amen. New Year's Day is in two days. Um, tomorrow's New Year's Eve, and many hot thoughts and plans go through our heads. If you're like me, I, I like jot down a New Year's resolution the morning of, and then the next day I throw it away because it's too hard. Um, but the world is constantly telling us that there's, we have a need for something new and fresh. That's what, I mean, if you look through Facebook, you open it up, that's all it is. All the ads are, here's a new product, here's how to be a better you. Um, it's like NyQuil. They come out with a better and stronger product every year. It's like if it was, could you just make it strong to begin with? And then we wouldn't have to buy new things all the time. But then we go on to the like, new, new diets. 
and there's this new trend right now, the keto diet. I'm so tired of the keto diet. Um, we skipped out on um, our on Kay's side of the family's Christmas, um, and then she came back and reported to us that everything was keto diet friendly, and I said I don't care because <laughs> that's disgusting. But you know, as we approach the new year, my hope is that you will clutch to something that isn't new but is of proven worth. It's timeless. It's eternal. Um, my hope is that you will consider. Jesus, which is the topic and title of my sermon. Jesus is not a new fad. The church has been growing strong for over 2,000 years. So let's turn to Hebrews 3. And as we get to the beginning of Hebrews 3, we see a problem. It starts with the word therefore. So I chose a text that is in the middle of an argument, and I don't know why, I just did. So we have to kind of go back a little bit, and I want to take just a moment to go through Hebrews um, chapter 1 and 2, um, because there, the word therefore, it's a connecting word. It bridges the gap between the previous argument and the argument that is to come. Um, so let's go to Hebrews 1, I think, yeah, Hebrews 1, um, 1 through 4, I'm just going to read it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken um, to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. I wish I could just say amen and say go home, because that is a beautiful passage, but you can't. So we've got to figure out what the writer is doing. Um, he's setting up the book um, by contrasting former things with this new way. And number two, they're laying out the gospel. So as the, what they're contrasting is, um, is the Jewish way and now the Christian way. Um, and so we need to get in the mindset that this book, the Scripture is grounded in a real time and place. I mean, oftentimes we will take it and say, this is so lofty, it's outside of this world. Um, but real people took pen and wrote down God's Word. And, you know, it is living and active, and it speaks to us today in our, in our culture, in our time. Um, but it's also a historical textbook. There's history here, and scholars and archaeologists refer to this book um, for its history. And so the, the, we have to figure out what the original audience, what they're doing, and they're probably all Jewish. Um, and Jews have a certain way under the Mosaic law. There are many rules, sacrifices, and traditions that we just don't have in our current setting. So we just need to be mindful of that as we're reading through our text today. And number two, they're laying out the gospel. Um, it says, you have been looking for a Messiah, speaking to the Jews. You've been looking for this Messiah, and he came, and his name is Jesus. He is the Son of God. It says he um, is the one who created the world. He is perfect. It says that he is holy. He's the exact imprint of the Father. He controls the cosmos. He purified us from our sins by way of a perfect and humble life with the conclusion of a cross. 
Um, he rose from the grave, and he's seated by the Father. That's chapter 1. And then chapter 2, um, to summarize it, it tells us to cling to the gospel message. Um, the book is most likely written right before the destruction of the temple. And uh, the temple was in Jerusalem, and um, Jews would go there every year to sacrifice. Um, and so this is written right before then. There's political turmoil. Um, Nero, he's an emperor um, who's, you know, killing Christians and Jews left and right. Um, I mean, Nero was a pretty, you know, evil man. He's, he murdered his uh, wife. He murdered his second wife. He murdered his mother. He, um, you know, he's even a man who burnt down Rome so that he could build it up in his own honor. Um, I was actually reading an article on Nero because I wanted to make sure I had my, my dates right. And it said, Nero did all these bad things, but he liked music and art. And I was like, that's not a cool, I mean, I don't care. Murder. Whatever. So that's what's going on at this time. There's, there's civil unrest. Um, and the author is saying the antidote for turbulence is Christ. He's the hope of the world. He's saying, and then it goes on to say that, he, um, that God is in control. Jesus became flesh to walk as we walk. Jesus has destroyed the power of the devil. Jesus is our helper. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus delivered us from sin through the cross. Jesus suffered so that he could um, um, understand our suffering. And then we get to chapter 3, the therefore. Knowing that... It says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, the family of God is a holy family. We are set apart. We are other in this world. We have a heavenly citizenship. We have a heavenly calling. We have a heavenly responsibility. And so I'm going to ask a dangerous question, um, but how many of us talk more about our blue and red party more than our eternal citizenship that we're marked for? And how many of us talk more that, um, for standing up for our country than standing up for the ways of God? And I say that not as a jab at America, but as a, at a jab at Christians who you know, are more proud to be American than proud to be Christian. If Christ is our Lord, we must hold dear the things that are eternal because we are mere pilgrims on this earth. We're simply traveling to our new home. Jesus is infinitely more important than our earthly things, and our calling is to our heavenly family. So it says, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, we share this calling together and there is a place for personal and inward reflection of our faith, but we also need to look outward or left and right. And remember that our faith is like a living organism. We're connected to each other. We each have a part in our journey of faith. That's why we're called the church. The church is much more than these four walls. The church is the brother and sister sitting next to us. The church is the collection of all Christ followers around the world and throughout time. Which is why, in a strange way, I am more spiritually connected to my sister in Christ in China than my, you know, blood brother here in America. 
the writer is calling us out as a collective. He's saying, hey, brothers, hey, sisters, you who share in this heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The writer is calling our complete attention to what he is about to write. He's saying, put away the distractions and look at the greatness of Christ. Now, isn't that just something we should do daily? To pause and reflect on Jesus? What if, instead of turning on the news in the morning or, you know, scrolling through Facebook, which really aren't great ways to start the day, I mean, I do it, and it just sets my day up for, oh, well, that's something dumb that happened while I was asleep. Instead of doing that, what if we took the time in the morning to start it off with prayer, to consider Jesus right away, to start it off with, with Scripture, or meditate on the goodness of the Lord. When was the last time you just, you know, didn't listen to the distractions and paused and thought of how good the Lord has been? How much different would your day be if it started not with the negative distractions, but with the goodness of the Lord? He moves on in chapter three, or in verse one there. It says that he is, that Jesus is the apostle and high priest who is faithful. An apostle simply means one who is sent. Our minds think of the apostle Paul, the apostle John, and they are simply men who were sent by Christ to carry his message. Jesus, our apostle, it says, carries the rights, the power, and the authority of the one who sent him, who is the Father. He is the ultimate revelation of the Father's character and will. It says he's our high priest. He's our advocate. He makes the way for an eternal relationship with Christ or with the Father. Then we move to, chapter, or to verse 2. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him. We can rely on Christ because he submitted himself to the Father. He submitted his whole will to him, just like Moses. Both Moses and Jesus fulfilled their God-appointed roles. They didn't choose. The Father said, this is what I have for you, and they did it. Could that be said of you, of us, of me, that we are faithful servants to the Lord? You know, if we had to do a self-reflection and analyze our own actions, would you be able to say that the Lord can... Re- can rely on you to uphold his ways. And if not, that's okay. In a strange way. Because when we come to Christ, we are not expected to be perfect. We are a part of a grace-filled faith. There is grace in our growth. There is grace in our struggles. There is grace in our walk. And you don't have to be perfect. We're striving towards perfection, and you will be perfect one day when you're dead and you get to heaven where there is no more sin. But it takes time. And then it starts going into Moses. It talks a lot about Moses in our passage. Um, this is what Numbers 12, 7 through 9 says about Moses. And this is actually the Lord speaking of his servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. 
Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Moses was upheld in God's sight. In this passage, actually, it's kind of a scary passage. Because the thing that we should take away from it is, be careful how you speak of God's chosen. Be careful how you speak of your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ. Be careful how you speak of your pastor and your elders. God's, it says God's anger is kindled when we treat his people poorly. So if his anger is kindled by treating his people poorly, how much more angry does he get when we treat his son poorly? It talks about Jesus being faithful, even though the Father appointed a hard task that entailed death. He lived a sinless life in the midst of being mocked, in the midst of being mistreated, in the midst of being challenged by religious leaders. He's surrounded by people who are constantly watching and judging him. When you say that you're the Son of God, all eyes are on you. So what, so what is the writer saying? He's comparing Moses and Jesus great people. So if we could talk about Moses here, pause the text so give us a little background. Moses was revered as the greatest of all the Hebrew people and really of history according to the Jewish people. Jewish people. Even in Christianity, Moses is upheld as someone to be revered. Moses was divinely chosen. God spoke to him, you know, from a burning bush. I don't think that has happened to anybody else. And if it has, it's, it's a problem. He was the deliverer of his people. He, let, he fought with Pharaoh and then, you know, led them out of the gates, led them through the, Dead sea, or through the Red Sea, and then onward towards the Promised Land. Rescued them from their bondage. He was Israel's greatest prophet. No one spoke of the things of the Lord like he did. Moses was the lawgiver. He gave them their system of worship after meeting with the Lord on Sinai. Moses was a historian. He's the author of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible or of the Jewish Hebrew Bible. He's their historian. In Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12 says, There has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So then we come back to Hebrews 3, 3 through 4. Knowing all of Moses' accomplishments and what the Lord thought of him, we are told that Jesus is still worthy of more glory. To a Jewish audience, whom this is being written to, this is one, overwhelming, and two, countercultural. They are given information that they have never heard before, and it goes against the grain of everything that they knew, everything that they grew up learning. Can you imagine having grown up your whole life, being told that Moses was the greatest prophet ever to come from Israel, and all of a sudden someone tells you, nope, someone else is greater? And his name was Jesus. 
Um, my printer printed it back to front, so it makes it really hard. Didn't listen to my directions. So then we move into the comparison of the house and the builder at the end of chapter or verse 3. Moses is the house in this context. The house is great. The house, it's reliable. It's sturdy. But the house had no part in building itself. The person who built this great thing deserves that glory. And Christ, as the creator of all things, is the builder of the house and deserves that honor. God, the creator, the Father, Son, and Spirit together were the one to, you know, make Moses and make us. And so their place needs to be much higher than a man, Moses. Moses is simply part of the creation. And, he, and he's still contrasting the two here. Um, Jesus has, in verses 5 and 6, um, what does it say here? Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Moses, as great as he is, is still a servant. He is subordinate to Christ. Christ is the son, and the author is showing us the difference between a son and a servant. The term servant doesn't have to be, is not synonymous with slavery. This term in the Greek it's a position of dignity. It's a position of freedom. And serving does not have to have a negative connotation. Jesus describes himself as a servant. Mark 10, 45, Jesus speaking of himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To think that God serves us is a humbling reality. That the creator of the world, you know, bows down and serves us. How can you live a life that is... Um, how can you live a life where someone is honored by the fact that you serve them? What are some ways that you can serve someone this week? What is a, a way that you can be a conduit of the gospel to someone else, maybe at your workplace or at the grocery store? Maybe even in your own home. Because if the Son of God serves, don't you think we should also? He's also telling us that such faithfulness invites us to trust Christ completely. Who better to trust than the one who is eternally reliable, not only in word, but deed? Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Through all of Moses' accomplishments, leading his people out of Egypt, writing the Pentateuch, giving them the law, he was primarily faithful as a testimony to that which was to come. Moses' role was not just servanthood, but it was to be a witness to that which should be said in the future. The system of worship that God gave to Moses to give to the Hebrew people was a preparation for 
in an anticipation of the realities that would come with the Messiah. The law was never meant to be it. It was a chapter in the story of redemption. The whole system was set up in anticipation for the Messiah, which is where we enter verse 6, our last verse. The word Christ is first mentioned in the book of Hebrews in chapter 3. It is the equivalent of Messiah. He is the one that the Jewish people have waited for for thousands of years. He is the climax of redemption history. There are no more saviors. Every prophet that comes after Christ has a duty to point to the Son. Which is why, if I was up here, you know, preaching this sermon before New Year's and was saying, here are 19 ways to better yourself in 2019, you should throw me out. Because it's not the gospel. If any prophet points to someone other than Christ, they are considered a false prophet. Why is it so important? Because the Messiah gives us access to the Father that we didn't have before. He saves us from sin. He gives us eternal hope. He grounds us in a foundation that is unshakable, which is the gospel. And we become pilgrims walking on this earth to our eternal home in heaven, which is where the King of glory dwells. In Jesus' time, people were looking for a prophet like Moses to come again. They were looking for a Messiah. And I would argue that people in our current day are still looking for a prophet like Moses. Someone who will go against the status quo. Someone who will deliver them from their Egypt where they are enslaved to. Don't be fooled. People are still enslaved these days. Maybe not to people, but they're enslaved to their own lust to their own possessions, to their government, to their families. They're enslaved to all types of sin still. And Christ made the way out just like Moses did when he parted the sea. But in order for the Hebrew people to actually be free, they had to walk across. And going across the sea isn't the last step. They had to keep walking for 40 years to reach the promised land. So as we wrap it up, the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. The words better, more, greater are said 25 times throughout the book of Hebrews. The two things that the writer tells us in our verses is that Jesus is better than the law. He is better than the system of worship that they had. He is better than Moses, the most revered man in Judaism. And Christ is better than the law. While the law had things we had to do to become right with God, Jesus did what needed to be done once and for all. And in the past, we had to sacrifice sheep to atone for sins. And now, Christ was the Lamb of God who sacrificed himself on a cross to atone for our sins should we accept him as our Lord. He alone delivers us. Christ is better than Moses. Again, Moses was divinely chosen. God spoke to him from a burning bush, but Christ was sent by the Father. He is the better Moses. Moses was the deliverer of his people, walked them out of Egypt into the prom or to the promised land. But Christ delivers us from our spiritual Egypt. He walks us out of death 
and into light. He walks in life. He walks us out of darkness and into light. Moses was Israel's greatest prophet, but Christ is the Son of God who prophets speak of and testify of. Moses was the lawgiver. He gave them the covenant. He set up their worship. But Christ gives us a new covenant, not one of law, but one of grace. Moses was their historian. He was the author of the Pentateuch. But Christ is the author of creation. Everything that Moses did, like I said, was an anticipation for the Messiah. Jesus is the better Moses. So what is the point? What does this give us? It gives us hope for a better future. The world tells us to find something new and fresh. You know, it sends you to self-help sections and Barnes and Noble. But Christ offers us a better way. He offers us eternal hope, eternal grace, eternal love. Consider Jesus. Have your full attention on Jesus for a hopeful and grace-filled 2019. The phrase, consider Jesus, is designed to encourage the weary. It is designed to challenge the sluggish and disobedient. Consider Jesus is meant and designed to reassure those who are doubting and drifting. And this is the greatest encouragement I could give you for 2019. It's to press on in your faith in the new year to fix your thoughts on Jesus. One of my favorite songs says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for making a better way for us to get out of our spiritual Egypt, to walk with you, to come home one day with you. I pray that as we move into the next year, that our eyes wouldn't be on the television ads or on you know books that we get from Barnes & Noble, but you. I hope that we will consider you that we will have our full attention on you and your word. We will be in tune and we will walk with the Spirit as it guides us. I pray that we would consider you for the new year. Thank you for these people. Pray that you would bless their day, bless their weeks. Not only that, I pray that you would use them to be a blessing to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.